Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Uh, The single most question I get asked when people are talking to me about leadership and about teams and about expanding their own careers always get the question, how do I get commitment? Somewhere up the chain, somebody has said to me as a leader that I need to bring people along and I need to get commitment. It seems to be front and center on everybody's mind. And typically that commitment is a commitment to my sense of direction or my change or my vision. And we all want that commitment so that the team goes out and execute. They give their best and we deliver great results. Now, occasionally people don't use the word commitment, they use the word persuasion. I'm kind of convinced at the end of the day, it's pretty much the same thing. But let's not take my word for it. I'm going to talk to an expert today about how you get commitment from a team and why you should care. My guest is Lewis Carter. He's CEO of the Best uh, Best Practice Institute and is the author of over more than 10 books on best practices in leadership and management, including the Change Champions Field Guide. He's been named as one of Global Guru's top 10 organizational culture gurus in the world, and he's an advisor to top uh, to C-level executives all over the world, helping them and their organizations achieve measurable results. What's most exciting to me, though, is his newest book, which is called In Great Company, How to Spark Peak Performance by Creating an Emotionally Connected Workplace. So, Lewis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wanda. It's a pleasure. I'm excited about this one. Um, before we, I mean, I gave my pitch about how important commitment is or persuasion, whichever way you want to say it. But I'm curious, why did you write this book in great company? What was the driver for you? I wanted to find out why people stay at their companies and want to produce more because I didn't want to when I was in two of my last jobs, quite honestly. And I, I at the same time, really said, okay, let's Let's go back to school. So I went back to Columbia and got my social organization psychology degree, and I started a new company. And I said, well, all of these books I've been writing are on best practices, what, what companies do well to develop leaders. And one thing that I didn't know, though, is what keeps people at companies and makes them want to perform more. You know, it's one thing to do a leadership development program or a talent management program, but it's another to really figure out why people are effectively committed to their companies. So I got super interested in this one model in grad school uh, that was uh, developed by uh, Meyer and Allen, John Meyer and Elizabeth Allen, on organizational commitment. And I studied it, and I learned about these three archetypes. The first was normative commitment, which is basically if I leave my company, I'm gonna, the whole world will fall apart. <laughs> there really, people are concerned about that. They, they, there's this kind of fear that if they leave, everything will, will be horrible. The second is continuance commitment, which is basically um, it, I don't have any other options. My salary, I have to keep to keep food on the table, and continuance commitment gets worse with age. So people, as they get older, uh, feel like they're stuck in their job. 
And the third is the, the one that I really was very interested in, which is effective commitment. That means I feel like I want to be in my company. I love my company. I want to be there. All is good. And I'm effectively committed to, to my workplace. And I said, well, how's that going to work? <laughs> how, do, how do people feel effectively committed? So I went, at, went and talked to uh, you know, hundreds of executives uh, in, in organizations throughout the globe and, and surveyed thousands of employees, their employees, and, and found out really the answer to one question, what does it take for you to be effectively committed or love your workplace? And coded everything and came up with five areas that, that uh, they all uh, agree on really uh, to being most, uh, m- most likely to be connected to that effective commitment. Okay. All right, so I did this in terms of a leader at the start of this getting commitment, but you're talking about it in terms of I love the workplace. I love working here and I'm committed to the organization. Is there a difference or are the two tied together? Well, they are. In order to lead, you, you, you know, you have to be at a place where you can immediately connect emotionally to somebody in the first 90 seconds <laughs> and of mm-hmm. any conversation or anything that you do. And, and everybody says, well, how does that work, right? And, and, and the, the whole way it works is, you know, are they like me or are they someone who I want to be like? And I, either one will work. So, uh, you, you know, uh, the, the, the truth is that, you know, the five areas have a lot to do with respect, uh, having a positive vision for the future, and how to collaborate and have a functional, good relationship. And you know, when you stay in that in that positive center and you just you can create awesome relationships. And that's what that's what great leadership is all about is, is these interconnected, emotionally connected, positive, functional relationships. OK. All right. And we're going to talk about the five areas in great detail. But it strikes me that what you're saying is a bit about what we've been describing as engagement in other places or what I'm increasingly hearing people describe as fulfillment. I feel fulfilled in my work or I feel proud to be here. um, And therefore, that's what generates commitment. But you're saying it's not quite that. You're saying it's something different. Yes? Yes, the study looked at two things. Um, you know, first was retention, so how long I want to stay there, and the second one is voluntary discretionary effort, which is how much more I want to produce for my company. So uh, we found that of you know where the people had these five archetypes or five different areas that were it was a unidimensional construct. They were ninety five percent of them were two to four times more likely to stay, and. Uh, uh, 94% were two to four times more likely to produce more, have more voluntary discretionary effort. And that that's what this came down to was, you know, people really had the sense that they weren't just at work, they were with each other and leading this kind of new revolution for moving change continuously, being with each other uh, to be committed to outcomes. And it went even beyond friendship. It became peers that really helped each other and teams that really helped each other to achieve great outcomes. Okay. 92% likely to produce more if I'm feeling emotionally connected and 94% likely to stay if I'm feeling emotionally connected. Yes? Uh, yep. 94% um, were, were two to four times more likely to produce more and 95% were two to four times more likely okay. to stay. 
Wow, those are big numbers. Anybody looking to push productivity or to push retention has got to be looking at that. So, okay, and then then before we get into the five factors, how did you do the research? Who did you talk to? Is this quantitative, qualitative, both? Just tell me a little bit about how the research was done. Yep. So I I, I did. You want, I can get into kind of the research validity. Um, I I did. Uh, I started with some models and did what research is called construct validity, where you create mm-hmm. something called Kronbach Alpha. You see the, the correlation between um, the organizational commitment model and the model that I, I created, um, mm-hmm. which is the five, five areas. So I started with that, with effective commitment, and I asked that, those questions, what does it take for you, you, know, what, for you to love your company? And I t- took all of the answers from all the people that I asked for, for executives from mid-sized to large organizations in all different vertical industries, um, and um, some small as well, breakdown. They were in all around the globe, so it was MENA, APAC, um, and U.S., uh, North America, and what we what we did was um, I just took in all this data, so just like massive amounts of quanti- you know qualitative data, just, just answers. It was just a bunch of answers, and and I put it through a coding tool, and yep. Um, yep. which exactly, and, and that gave me all of this these uh, basically codes or uh, okay. Excel Excel spreadsheet, and then I took those and looked at the definitions for each of those five areas. And it became a unidimensional construct that uh, had a really high Kronbach Alpha, which is correlational re- analysis to the organizational commitment um, study with Meyer and Allen. So there was it. It, it was validated by um, the by um, the fact that there was an existing study that I um, that I uh, further um, brought right. to to a to a new place. All right. Fabulous. Yeah, I wasn't planning this to be a tutorial in statistics, but it is important if people are going to take this seriously to understand that there's a lot of work behind it to ensure that these five behaviors are valid and reliable and actually measure what we think they're measuring. So with that, so it's just that you went out and asked people, what does it take for you to love your company and to give discretionary effort? And people give you back all sorts of answers. And then you're deciphering that and saying, what are the factors that are really driving it? And so there are five areas that drive people to want to stay and to give more discretionary effort. And by an astronomical amount, 94% are two to four times as likely to produce more and 95% are two to four times as likely to stay if they love the company they're at. So tell us what those five areas are, please. Sure. So I just go through the names. and uh, It's systemic collaboration uh, is, is the first. Positive future, alignment of values, respect, and then killer outcomes. And I can go through each one. Um, the you know we obviously changed the names a little bit uh, to uh, create an acronym called Spark or Sparking Sparking Emotional Connectedness. And at the same time, they're all very specific in terms of uh, practices and competencies that a leader can uh, can exhibit in order to uh, gain or create that culture. Okay. All right. So systematic collaboration, positive future, alignment of values, respect, and a killer outcome. Exactly. Yep. Okay, great. All right. So now I need a definition. Let's start with the first one, this whole notion of systematic collaboration. What does that look like when people are doing it really well, and why does that matter so much? 
Well, a lot of people think of collaboration in terms of just what happens in teams. Um, what, what people are thinking of in terms of collaboration is in systems. So how does my team uh, connect to other systems inside the corporation? How is it different or the same? And I, I just was facilitating a workshop uh, for the government, and I, I, I won't use their name, uh, for a government agency. And um, one of the things that we were talking about was when we gave an exercise to to uh, to develop a, a new chain, new changes inside of their division was they said, well, who do I use? What do, do I focus on my division? Do I focus on their divisions? And um, I don't understand. I don't. I don't get this exercise. So I said, I said, I said, turn turn away from me for a second. And look at look at the board it's right behind you. And on the board it says it said my team. It was a, my team can collaborate better by right. And, and then my team collaborates really well by right. So I said. So I said, guess what? everybody's the same <laughs> and how you connect to the larger system is the same as well. As long as it's functional, there's equal airtime. There's a, a uh, there's a usage of four player roles of supporting, marrying, challenging, and moving to decisions. I said, as long as you can define how you work in your team, that's how you also work across divisions and systemically inside of a company. Okay. So this is not just that my team is all nice and having a good time. It's that my team understands what it takes to effectively collaborate with everybody across the business. Did I understand that correctly? Very well said. Really well said. Okay. <laughs> exactly right. Good. Yeah. Wow, that's a daunting task because you're right. We always think about yeah. it in terms of collaboration within this team. But those are not the things that create the barriers. It's the collaboration with that other group over there who has a different agenda that really is what's going to drive results. Okay. That, that, that's right. And there, there's so many implications. There's political implications that we have to we drive through those barriers. There, there's, uh, there's reasons why people won't help us in other divisions. And we have to find ways to give and take and, and provide and, and, and make sure that our lives are better as a result of having them in it and vice versa. And that takes a lot of work. So, so you're absolutely right. We, and it has exponential impact when we not just do it in our team, but we do it with other teams and we enable a whole system of, 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 uh, of positive future. Okay. All right. So we're going to come to positive future in a minute. Can you give me some clues about how I go about doing that? So let's say my team is working on a big IT project. But we can't get that big IT project done without getting somebody who's going to use the IT group um, or to use the IT project for a deliverable wanting to collaborate with us and give us time and beta test. Let me just take that as a simple example. What do we do to create that collaboration with teams that don't always want to help? Mm-hmm. So, so, so co-creation is the way. And uh, okay. the way we've always done it, yeah, the way we've always done it is how we have a design team that is, is cross-functional. So uh, that design team has a, a, a say in how the meeting, or, or we'd say the transformational session, uh, if it's an hour, two hours, is, is designed and so that they can get their, their uh, ideas and, and uh, interests in the room. And they become the facilitators of it. So, so you mix everybody in, right? 
And so you'll have, you'll have mostly dyads, two people that, rep- that work together on a specific question that may or may not be in the same division, right? So they all together, then, then they report out to large group, get into groups of three to four, report to large group. Then you have large group discussion. It could be tw- 12 people, then of 100 people, 300 people, 1,000 people. It really doesn't matter. What matters, the, the, what matters is not the number. It matters is in the participation and in the co-creation so that everybody has a place and, and voice in what they're creating. That sounds an awful lot like um, creating an inclusive workplace so that everybody Absolutely. participates, everybody has an effort in the co-creation, and everybody has a voice. That, okay. that's, the, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Okay. Okay. All right. So I get this process started by the first spark is the systematic first S in spark is the systematic collaboration. And I create this collaboration as we're just talking about. It's not just my team, but it's my team with all the other parts of the organization. And I'm doing that in a carefully, very thoughtful, systematic way, it sounds like, of getting everybody to talk Everybody to decide what needs to be said in creating the design of the meeting and everybody having a voice. It sounds painfully slow, is it? It's fast it, because it, what's slow is waiting to get uh, uh, buy-in, if quote-unquote, from everybody. And, and the process is, is, could take years. And what this does is it works cross-functionally. You do it in an hour or two. If you do it really well, you do it in two and a half days um, with a transformational session. I don't recommend it, though. I think you can do it a lot more rapidly in smaller groups and mm-hmm. then uh, cascade down so that the okay. managers actually work with their people of 12 and then 12. So it just it becomes part of the, the fabric of the company. And, and the uh, I'd always do an Excel spreadsheet or Google sheet afterward, and you put uh, names of the groups, names of the leaders or accountability leaders in the groups, and then the outcomes of what they're accountable for, and then about four to five times to show where they are with progress. For each group, mm-hmm. so it's much quicker. It's much more easily trackable and and accountable to actually make some action. Right. So the, presumably, this means that the leader has to give up having the the right way or the right answer, and make room for adjusting, altering, hearing different perspectives. Yeah, I I think it. I I would change that a little bit. Um, okay. I. I I don't think they have to give it up. I think so I, because I I think they need to have a, a strong vision, a very strong vision, and um, in, they, you do a cost-benefit analysis of what you hear. So some things may work, some things may not. As long as you give you give them a chance to be your stakeholder in the development of your vision, um, because you were hired for a reason, right? Every single leader I talk to, whether it's Francis Hesselbein, Hubert Jolie, or some of my existing CEO clients, they say. Well, you know, say, they say my my board keeps pushing back on me, and uh, you, you know, at times one CEO I'm working with said that, and I I have to remind them you hired me to do this, <laughs> and so um, I think it, it's very important for a leader to know why they were hired and what they're there to do, and and not compromise their values. Right. Great. Yeah, I meant in terms of adjust the way forward, but not necessarily the destination that we're going to. 
Right. Okay. Yeah, if you want people to move forward with it, you have to make certain that they're part of the, <laughs> the discussion. And, uh, and, and, and the more people who believe in it, the better there are many people who don't believe in it, and they have a choice. <laughs> so, you know, they have to make that choice. And, and a leader, okay. leader does, especially if they have great values, you have to stick to your, to your knitting. All right. Okay. All right, so the five areas. First, systematic collaboration. We've just been talking about it. The second one is a positive future. What's that one about and how does that work? Yeah, so p- positive future, if you think of like Hubert Jolie from, I see one of my favorite examples from Best Buy. I mean, look, what do, you, what do you know about Best Buy, right? Do you remember what happened <laughs> with uh, Netflix and, and, um, yeah. <laughs> and Amazon? Everyone was going to Best Buy because it was a showcase. People were going there to check out electronics and equipment and they take out their cell phone and they take out their barcode and look at where they're, what the prices are at Amazon. So um, when Hubert was, was hired, um, he had a vision. He had a vision that he provided to them. And Jim Citrin, he's a CEO recruiter at Spencer Stewart, found him because he had a vision for what he could do for Best Buy and what he thought Best Buy should do, which has become a really strong customer-centric, customer-service-oriented company that made it easy for people to be educated and understand how to use equipment and be an on, on-site uh, service provider, uh, which Apple was doing really well. And they, he, the difference is that they, Best Buy doesn't just have Apple products. They have a, a myriad of products. And now you can go to your local Best Buy and do that. So he saw an issue, a problem, a, or a challenge, and something they do well, which is showcasing, and had a vision for everybody, which they loved and they all bought into. And he moved on to a, a much greater place. And everybody I work with, including a CEO uh, of, of a, a, a clinic, a 2000 uh, physician clinic, um, has those visions that they're that they're implementing, as well as their executives. And we work really hard on that vision statement and, and presentation before, um, you know, really going to collaborate and get the people to to get people to really help enable that vision. And, and he did the same thing. Okay. So that's the sense of he has a direction. He's hired to do something, which is to transform the company from one state to another state, a positive state, if you will. He's worked really, really hard on that vision. And that's the setup that allows them to do the um, systematic collaboration work. Exactly. Well, really well said. Yeah, that's okay. awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay. yep. I love how you bring things together. You, <laughs> you always hey, make it really clear. I'm, I'm about simple because that's the only thing I can hang on to is kind of in this essence, what is this one really, really, truly about? Okay, let's do the third one, which is about alignment of values. Why is this one important? Yeah, you know, alignment of values is about, you know, it does my values, do my values connect to that of the organization? And there are really highly, high values organizations where people uh, are there because of the values of the organization um, alone. And um, that sometimes creates the normative or uh, continuous commitment because they yep. they bought into the the values, right? And then they're like, "Oh, I'm stuck." So uh, you have to make sure that that's not the only one, um, because you you could join a, you know a nonprofit and then be buried underneath massive amounts of paperwork and bureaucracy, or a government agency and and, and do the same. So it's really about the. Uh, you know, the, the balance of values with the organization and making sure that they, they are aligned. 
look at look at Enron, right? I mean, people thought they were buying into you know a, a financially stable organization that helps you know, people create better nest eggs uh, and and improve their investment. What, what was really happening? Something far different. <laughs> so right. you, know, you have to really check up on who people are doing and how they're doing it. And at the same time, there's some awesome values-based organizations out there that align completely with where people are at. Um, there's other things, too, though, about the work-life balance, about flexi- flexible work arrangements, about how they want to be how employees want to be treated um, in terms of inclusivity and, and diversity, um, having a more now neurodiverse workplace. Um, you know, there are new things that, that commit where values are, are um, different than just um, organizational brand values. They're, they're more about who I am as an individual and do you respect me and others who are, um, going, are on different paths. Right. I um, have just been working with a new client, and I have been talking to a bunch of people in this client. I'll keep them confidential for just for security, for safety purposes here. But I think they'd love what I'm about to say about them. And as I've been interviewing people who are in the high potential track in that organization, what I hear over and over and over is a pride in the mission of the company, what the company is about. Um, and... You know, that is often said in a way that almost sounds like it's more values than it is mission. Values in terms of how we treat our customers, values in terms of how we cre- how we interact with people in our supply chain, and so on. So is that the kind of stuff that you mean by this alignment of values? I think it's similar. I mean, I think, I think mission, vision, purpose, they, they, they all have a different... They have different connotations and reasons that are defined differently by companies, mostly because they they create their own um, definitions of what those things are. Yeah. So, so uh, you, you've probably seen that, right? People think yes. mission is different than purpose, and they get really confused on what's what's what. And and um, you know, v- values can be defined in different ways too. They're personal values, so things I value as a person in my life, in, in my work, my work requirements, you know, what I want in my work life, how I want, how I want to interact with people. And then mm-hmm. there's uh, the kind of corporate values like Patagonia, who, who, who doesn't believe in conspicuous consumption, right? So people who uh, climb mountains and uh, are uh, stay outside a lot, right, are outdoors people yeah. really love Patagonia, and they, their their ad and during Christmas was don't buy our pro- products. <laughs> Because they don't, right. they wanted to show that they don't want conspicuous consumption, right? So, guess what happened? Everyone bought their products, and everybody who loves working for Patagonia were really psyched about it as well, because it helped their bottom line. But it also, at the same time, uh, aligned with their personal values. So, and helps them with recruitment and their employer brand. So, values can can run a gamut of definitions from personal to organizational and brand. Okay. All right, and so am I looking to align the values between the personal and the corporate, or am I just looking to make sure that we've got a breadth of values that are appropriate to what we're trying to achieve at the corporate level? Where's the alignment, I yeah. think I'm asking? Yeah, personal or organizational. That's the, that's the main alignment. So, you know, so if, if Patagonia, for instance, is a, you know, whatever sort of shifted gears and started uh, having child labor <laughs> to develop their clothing, they lose ninety percent of their workforce. So that's that. It's definitely personal, organizational. You know, it strikes me. People will always use the phrase "walk the talk," 
you know, I respect this company, I like this company because our leaders walk the talk. I think that's what you've articulated in a much better way, is that my personal values are aligned with the organizational values, and we actually mean it. We're not just giving words. We're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. All right. Well, this strikes me as a perfect place to take a break. So let's do that. But I want to recap that the five areas that Lou finds are really critical for creating top performance. And by top performance, I mean a place where people love to work and are willing to give discretionary efforts so they get great results. So the five are systemic collaboration, a positive future, alignment of values, and then we have two yet to talk about, respect and a killer outcome. My guest today is Lewis Carter, and the book we're talking about is In Great Company, How to Spark Peak Performance by Creating an Emotionally Connected Workplace. And we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Lewis Carter. He's CEO of Best Practice Institute and the author of over the 
than more than 10 books on best practices in leadership and management. The book we're talking about is In Great Company, How to Spark Peak Performance by Creating an Emotionally Connected Workplace. And the argument here is when people feel emotionally connected at the workplace, they are way more likely to stay by a whopping margin, and they're far more likely to give discretionary effort, and that's what's going to drive results. Now, the overarching question we've been trying to answer is, what is it that creates this sense of emotional connection? What Lewis is going to call effective commitment. So I'm committed to the outcome, to the whole, to the greater good, to the performance, I guess, defined at any rate. And Lewis's research, after hundreds and thousands of interviews, asking, why do you love to work here? Finds that there are five things that matter. The systematic collaboration, the alignment of values, a positive future, I put those in the wrong order, respect, and a killer outcome. So we've done three. Let's do the last two. How does respect fit in this? So th- thanks for bringing that, that back back in mind. You know, respect is, is is an enormous element because we call it, we call it, we call it respect is the new currency. <laughs> so so okay. uh, it, you know, and it's reciprocal and, and systemic. So you give it, you get more of it, right? <laughs> so uh, with with respect. You, you you've probably seen environments where there's bullying. It's it's not that hard to find bullying, or uh, there's an unequal uh, sort of uh, uh, balance of power in areas, or and it may bullying may happen across or up and down the organization. It happens everywhere. It happens in schools too, right? So um, yeah. what? So so to the extent, what's really important is do I do I feel respected and do I give respect inside of a company? And there's examples where it's happened where. Um, where, where there has not been respect and it's had disastrous outcomes. And you know, I'll just give a, a, a quick example of it, um, if I can. Uh, my, my friend uh, is a retired Brigadier General, Tom Colditz. And Tom, he was running a uh, battalion of Korean augmentee soldiers and U.S. soldiers. And you may imagine U.S. soldiers, are they have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, gravitas, bravado, they, they're strong, you know, hand in hand, uh, you know, kind of that with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, guns and, and, uh, sights and, and they're, very, they have a lot of, um, a lot of pride as well, which is awesome. You know, it's, I, I, I love that as well. And, uh, and patriotism. The Korean augmentee soldiers were more reserved, um, used more martial arts techniques and um, use more energy in the way that they sort of more, more probably more Taoist approach, if you will, mm-hmm. to 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 uh, to um, uh, the battle. And uh, so, what happens when you bring polar opposites together, especially these kinds of opposites? What would you imagine? They're probably not going to be that nice to each other, right? So, yeah. U.S. soldiers were pretty pretty not so nice to the Korean Agua tea soldiers. And, and actually, Korean Agua tea soldiers had a really high suicide rate. So Tom did what he, he had to intervene. So he, he did, he gave a Korean augmentee soldier the most coveted position for, with the Br- brigadier general, which is to be his driver. Um, then he held um, sessions at Korean dojos so they could learn what uh, the Korean augmentee soldiers were doing inside of the martial arts techniques, which they just immediately were in awe of because they couldn't believe the amount of, uh, of incredible things they learned from dojos. Then they had uh, uh, dinners with them, uh, uh, with their families, and had traditional Korean dinners. And it changed 
all of the dynamics. And previously, they were going into V formation against the enemy uh, lines, and they weren't communicating at each flank. And that, that has disastrous consequences, which included, obviously, death. And after that, that, all of his interventions, which he took immediately after figuring out <laughs> it just wasn't working out, uh, he reduced... Uh, now, those mortality rates substantially to almost nothing. They're one of the highest ranked, highest ranked uh, battalions uh, in, in, in his uh, interventions, military interventions. Okay. So these interventions are really trying to understand the generalized character of one group of people and the generalized character behaviors, if you will, of another group of people and educating each half on why the other half is good. So you get to experience yeah, exactly. what's good about it. That, that's right, Wanda. You're saying it right again. <laughs> I love the way, I love I love how you're doing. It. You must have you must have studied and practiced this every day. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can tell that you're good. At it. You're great at it. So so you're absolutely right. Um, and it, what's really cool about what you said is when you, the more you know and the more you listen, the more you can intervene and make things happen that are different and can move a system around instantaneously. Um, you know, just a small thing like making someone your driver, uh, you know, who like most coveted position, you know, in- enabling people to you know, see the other side of what they're experiencing so they can be in it. And it, 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 this just has enormous consequences, for positive consequences. And now there's AI uh, or augmented reality where it enables you to be that other person, more diverse person, uh, it, 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 this incredible scientist is, has walked, worked on that for, for Walmart, and he's doing just that. He's in the, allowing people through augmented reality uh, to become that person and, and view what it would be like to be a, a, somebody else, uh, a different okay. gender, a different uh, race, a different ethnicity it's with another uh, inside of a program. So it's this experience of the other side that creates great respect. Yeah. It's, it, it's, I can imagine how easy it is to help somebody see what the world looks like from my position, but it's often hard to get people to feel what it feels like from my position. And this strikes me as part of this is it was a very effective way of getting people to feel what it's like to be in a dojo, for example, or to be with a family. So there's an, there's an emotional component to this, not just the physical component. I love it. That's right. Okay. <laughs> that's right. The, the, that, that's right. So when you go into companies and try to help them improve the respect um, that's especially as we think about this systematic collaboration. So we're collaborating from one my team with another team or multiple teams across the organization, and we're trying to create respect. Does it always start with an education, helping people understand how the other side sees the world? I, I think that the, I think everything comes down to that. In the middle is we we are all able to see how our our uh, experiences are more. Uh, alike than they are dissimilar. And that happens when we're inside of group or team or working cross-functionally and finding those kind of critical uh, uh, agreements. And that happens, so it happens in teams when we're doing that. And then it happens uh, when our leaders recognize something that 
um, is is wrong and make adjustments. So um, I think it's I think intervention is necessary no matter what. I, I think intervention and observation are critical to making that happen. And it, it yeah, it really does. And, and, and to your point, I, it, uh, being uh, you know feeling the other side is also critical and. Have you heard of Arthur Aaron's study on, on love? He, 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 yes. He did a great, tell us about it. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so it's a great study. He, he, um, what he did was he, he had people um, basically stare in each other's eyes for as long as they could up to four minutes. After that, it got, after three, it got creepy. But he, he stared at each other's eyes without talking for three minutes. So you're kind of seeing each other and you're looking at each other. And then you ask a series of questions. He had like 42 questions, which is just unbelievable. And you listen without judgment for the entire time. And then you answer the questions. And it, it, the experiment is meant to basically fe- feel love for another person. And um, what it's do with the experiment has been shown in reflection is that we find that our, our experiences are very, very much alike in these questions. And in, in, in looking at others, we see ourselves, which is definition of intimacy into, uh, into you, I see me. Um, so and into me, I see you. So there, there's this kind of understanding that you are me, I am you. And there's a lot of spirituality books in that as well, if I might talk about that, is, is, is really um, the divine I see in me is within you, which is namaste in, in, in yoga, right? Uh, right. And, and um, we see each other in ourselves. So that, that's very much a, a part of emotional connectedness is this experience of listening, hearing, feeling what, you, what you're going through and you uh, the same with me. Right, right. This, you know, resonates on so many different chords. If people are interested in Arthur Aaron's work, the way to Google this is called the 36 Questions. Um, New York Times has published it, and it's sort of widely available on the Internet. I was just at a conference, in fact, this last week, where we, not staring at each other's eyes, but where we took several of those questions and paired up with somebody and basically answered the questions and have the other person answer. And it's quite remarkable how quickly you get a sense of the other person from even just four basic questions at the very beginning of this list um, and how much you find in common. Um, it also strikes me of um, Adam Cohane, who's been Cohane, who's been a guest here too, has a book talking about and does his work talking about how do you get people to collaborate when they actually hate each other, literally <laughs> hate each other, have tried to kill each other. And he says at the end of the day, there is a bit of commonality, but you don't get that by getting people to acknowledge the commonality. Where you get to is by getting people to admit that there is a problem that's worth solving. So we may not agree on how to solve it, but we agree that this is a problem that's worth solving. And it's all variations on this same thing. So this idea of creating respect, and you use the word intimacy, into you, I see me, or into me, I see you. Very, I, I've heard that as well. It's a fascinating one. So that's respect. That's the third one. And then the last one is a killer outcome. Why is that important? A killer outcome, 
Yeah, what you're doing is you're aligning your strategy with your structure. So you, you look at Joe Lee, for example, Best Buy. He had a very specific vision, and you know what it created in, in outcomes is you know improving vendor relationships. Who like with Sony, Microsoft, Canon, Nikon, AT and T, Google, uh, Apple, who all wanted to work with them even more strongly because of this relationship that he's created to help them as well and their products. And they go into advertising campaigns with them. They share advertising campaigns. They share. They buy. You know, helping with share, uh, shelf space. So, so everybody won as a result of of his of his work. And uh, so, it, it's really about it's about those kinds of outcomes that you create based upon that 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 strat, that strategy with the structure. And and sort of and communicating those those goals really cl- really clearly. So it, it, it works best when the objectives are stated simply, like you've been doing, Wanda, and compu- and and co- constantly communicated. So I, I've talked to CEOs who t- say to me that if they say things eight times, it's still not heard. If they say things mm-hmm. eighteen times, they just start to hear it. So that, you know, re- repetition is really the, the key to everything. And um, so, so that that's really huge as well. Um, the whole achievement factor is is excellent in terms of allowing people to to um, to, to achieve and giving them the power and resources to achieve. And uh, I talked to a, a head of the Olympic uh, team and uh, who, who a women's Olympic team, uh, Jerry Colangelo, and and um, one of the things he said to me was, he said, Lou. Uh, the reason why my my team was successful wasn't because I did anything. He, he said, I, I didn't do anything with them. I only asked them one question every single day. What can I do to help? And what do you need from me to, for, for more, you know, if you need more resources or help uh, from me? And, and, and uh, otherwise, they were a living organism and organization, and, and they want it themselves. So I, great coaching and great um, leadership often happens by giving resources and the necessary um, items that people require to, to achieve success. Mm-hmm. This is, I love this one because this is one of the basic tenets of my work where we're talking about spanning leadership, where you're leading when you're not the expert, where you don't have the answers. You can't go tell that Olympic team member to step one step inch further and that will achieve their goal or whatever else it is that you can micro order. And that what you have to do when you are a spanning leader is it's really about listening to people and asking them what do they need from you and finding the resources or identifying the resources or pulling in the resources, whatever it is people need from you. And sometimes it's really surprisingly very little. And it's not that we have to go have the answer out there. And that just is sort of underscores it for me. Um, I think what's interesting about... In your in your work, Wanda, I, I know that you you have a great uh, you have great body of work around um, you know how to lead when other people have more expertise, right, than we do. Mm-hmm. Isn't that one of your, your areas of expertise? Yeah, that's one of my. Yeah, that's right. So it, that would that's a wonderful area that, that connects really strongly to this because without you, you know, first of all, I know you have a structure for it and it, it connects well with this because emotional connectedness is what it's all about, right? If you don't have that, you can't give resources. How can we help others who know more than we do? Right. Well, they're not going to tell you in the first place if you don't have emotional connection. It strikes me that what you're saying is that with that emotional connection, everything goes smoothly. I, 
I often say it this way. If we have emotional connection and we're working together and we have a disagreement, we have the basis to work through it. Or if I say something and it doesn't go particularly well from your point of view, we have the basis to work through it. Or if I have a difficult piece of feedback for you, we have a basis on how to work through it. That stuff is what we really ultimately are looking to achieve, I think, here. And I think that's why emotional connection is so powerful. Um, And that's what commitment is about. Effective commitment is about emotional connection. I think that's your premise from the very get-go. Okay, so just repeat. Go ahead. I, and we can do that really, really well through the language you use. We use like fee, using feed forward instead of feedback. So, you know, maybe next time try this or, you know, uh, that, and instead of the butt, right? The neuro linguistic programming. So once you have that basis for how we communicate and feel, we feel comfortable doing it and we believe in the same things, you know, life is good. <laughs> so yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah. When I look at your work, at these five factors, systematic collaboration, um, alignment of values, I've got one now, positive future, alignment of values, respect, and a killer outcome. I look at five. They're all five in a very positive frame. We're looking for the good in, for the commonality in, for even the feed forward idea is what's right as opposed to what's wrong. Is that to the core to all of this emotional connection and effective commitment? It really is. It's so well said. It's uh, what, what we do well and what we can do better because when we look at the past, we end up looking at not just the rearview mirror. It, it, it increases cortisol. Uh, it it uh, increases the amount of walls we put up. Um, and we're, we're in a blaming culture, and instead we move to something that is a little more comfortable for everybody, which is, you know, what we do well, which is kind of, hey, this is cool. I really enjoyed that. I appreciate that. And then, you know, maybe you could do this better and then do a cost-benefit analysis. That made sense to me. That didn't make sense to me. That holds true to me, or it, or it, or it doesn't hold true to me, and feel, um, you know, strongly in in how we can move together you know, in, a, in a way that's emotionally regulated and cool. Okay. So it's not that I'm not giving feedback. I'm just giving it in the context of moving forward. So I'm saying what's right, what we do well, and then what we could do to make it even better is in the direction of moving forward to a more positive future. Exactly. This is you say, hey, let's do this next time, and and uh, and th- and it helps us both, and and um, then just it just makes our lives so much better. <laughs> Can you think yeah. about each person in it and giving? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So if I take these um, five, the spark. Can you give me an example of how this sort of works? Like, just tell me a story about how a company, you've talked about Best Buy, but can you give me another example of how somebody really put this in action? Sure. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about from a personal perspective of marketing and branding. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I, when I work with a CEO, like the first thing we do is I just, I, I'm working with the CIO now. Um, I do work with the executive team now. First thing we do is the, the vision element. And um, the vision element is, is, is super important to, to kind of putting things in action. The key to it all, though, is does what I set out to do actually create outcomes that are consistent with my vision? So, uh, you know, wh- whether that's, um, you know, in- improving the amount of apps that make it easier for people 
to uh, to uh, to interact with the hospital or with yeah. the healthcare system. That that's that's a metric. That's a great metric. Or if it's um, increasing the amount of providers um, so as to reduce wait times, that's another mm-hmm. metric. Um, it, or it, or um, uh, improving the um, the patient experience um, to an extent that it reduces their cortisol level uh, with people and thus giving them education and, uh, around how to take care of themselves better for a healthcare uh, insurance company so that mm-hmm. they can basically improve their uh, their rates. <laughs> Right, yeah. and keep their 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 population of of uh, who who require their services and remuneration um, lower. Um, those are all killer outcomes and require interventions. And uh, whether it's you know, uh, observing experiences first within the patient experience, or um, or or looking at wait times or. Uh, how people schedule out six months in advance, how do we reduce that? Or for a healthcare company, you know, how do we uh, reduce the amount of, um, of, of insurance payouts through uh, consumer education? Okay, okay. That all makes a ton of sense to me. So we're starting with a sense of vision and then we're looking at what kind of outcomes can I actually measure and make sure that those are consistent with where it was that I started at in the beginning. I think that's a great, um, great, great thing. So, Lewis, you got t- two minutes. If you were giving somebody advice, one thing to pay attention to who really wanted to follow this spark formula, what's your one piece of advice? Mm-hmm. Well, one piece of advice is try it. Do, do, I have an <laughs> exercise I do. With it. Yeah, you have to try it. You know, it, it, everything in this book and everything around this is, is about practicing. And the more you practice each of these elements in a more uh, a, uh, specific way and vigilant way, um, using feed forward, uh, as, uh, recognizing what's great and what can be better, um, respecting others as you'd like to be respected, being specific to your vision and then measuring your vision throughout time to make sure that you achieve those outcomes living the values that are truly inside of you, inside of your company, doing these things actively every day and asking yourself every day on a scale of 1 to 10, did I do my best to dot, 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 do one of these five things, right? And then being accountable to yourself and even a partner, accountability partner, so that you yourself are leading that change you seek in the world, as JFK, Mahatma Gandhi, and every other great leader said. Okay, excellent, excellent. Lewis, I think that's fabulous. I just want to repeat the whole notion here behind this is effective commitment comes because there's emotional connection. And emotional connection comes from spark. So a systematic collaboration, a positive future, um, alignment of values, respect, and achieve a killer outcome is the K at the end. The book, in case you're interested, is called, again, In Great Company, How to Spark Peak Performance and create an, by Creating an Emotionally connected workplace. I keep stumbling on my words. I would also tell you that if you go to Lewis's website, lewiscarter.com, there's a lovely little self-assessment there and a whole bunch of other resources that would help you get started in addition to buying the book. So, Lewis, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having for joining us today. Well, you're terrific. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone.
thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.